spent the last five years working with citizen science with the best possible scientists we could find, including the regulatory agencies being at the table with us does put us at an advantage, but it is now our responsibility to make sure that, that we get the word out to other environmental justice communities. To not be suckered into these models that are solely for the sake of profiting off of data. This was not designed for some data company to be able to absorb all this data and then turn it into some cool app that with some cool branding. This has to be a model that does emissions reductions and brings public health benefits into the community, into the neighborhood. Democratizing data, that's the most important thing. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Vernice Miller-Travis, Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Equitable Development at SCIO, an environmental consulting firm. I host our regular monthly series on environmental justice, equitable development, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here we talk about how we can make our communities more sustainable, livable, and equitable. Our guest today is Ms. Veronica Eady and Mr. Luis Almedo, and our topic is Revolutionary Air Quality Monitoring. Welcome, Veronica and Luis. First, let me share a little background about our two guests today. Veronica Eady is the Assistant Executive Officer for Environmental Justice at the California Air Resources Board. In this capacity, Veronica is responsible for overseeing environmental justice activities of the board. Her role is to serve as the primary internal and external contact for CARB, on environmental justice issues and concerns, and she'll be responsible for providing policy consultation and recommendations to CARB staff. She'll also participate in decision-making during the development and implementation of all major CARB programs to ensure that environmental justice and tribal concerns are considered. Welcome, Veronica. We're also joined today by Luis Almedo, Executive Director of Comité Civico del Valle, an organization located in the California Salton Sea region whose mission focuses on addressing environmental justice and public health with the endeavor of improving the lives of disadvantaged communities, primarily those located in the Imperial and Coachella Valleys. Luis Olmedo is a community activist who advises on local, regional, and state environmental health programs affecting Imperial County and Eastern Coachella Valley, and he's a member of various state and national networks that focus on environmental policy and regulation. Welcome to you both. For those of you in our listening audience who are not based in California, today's conversation will focus on the groundbreaking, although controversial, program currently underway to use a cap-and-trade program to reduce carbon emissions and target investments into EJ and other environmentally overburdened communities to improve local air quality across the state of California. Veronica, I was wondering if you could start our conversation by helping our audience understand what California's Global Warming Solutions Act and its cap-and-trade program are seeking to accomplish through a market-based approach. And then, Luis, I'd like you to give us your perspective. Sure. Well, to put a finer point on it, the problem that EJ groups have identified with cap-and-trade is that you can have larger facilities that since they're able to purchase allowances, which is basically a permit to pollute, these facilities may actually increase their greenhouse gases rather than reduce them, which you would have from a command and control regulation or even some other carbon pricing mechanism. So, And Luis, can you give the 
the perspective of the California EJ community about their critique of the cap and trade approach? California is made up of many different environmental justice communities that are fence lined to a lot of the regulated facilities that are regulated under the cap and trade. I would say that there is a consensus across environmental justice that we want California to meet its goals and to go beyond those goals of reducing greenhouse gases. What um what I would say about this is that I believe that environmental justice is not in agreement with the market-based mechanisms because it lends itself to trading pollution across states. It lends itself to trading pollution across from one environmental justice community to another environmental justice community. And there is a lot of risk that that there will be affected communities. And that's something that we as an environmental justice movement always are careful in the advocacy work that we do, that if we are effective in removing toxic sources from one EJ community, that we're not ending up sending it to another EJ community. And that's that's part of the work that we do as an environmental justice movement across California. Back in July 2017, AB 398 and AB 617 were introduced. I really feel that it did cause a lot of concern across the environmental justice communities because there was a lot of other alternatives that were not driven by market-based and would retire, for example, uh, these greenhouse gases. And however, it did bring AB 617 that did have some benefits in coordinating in a more targeted way the reductions of toxics and criteria contaminants in disadvantaged communities. And so I, I think that overall, we would like California to meet its goals and go far beyond its goals, but cap and trade is still a contentious issue and is very it's a very risky model that could put at greater risk California of exporting its benefits. And California, I think as a whole, would like to see those benefits stay here in California for public health purposes, for reducing the greenhouse gases and effectively meeting the goals that California has set. Excellent. So given that that backdrop. I find it fascinating, the collaboration that you all have developed under AB 32, the advisory group that you have, the EJ advisory group under AB 32, which Luis, I believe you serve on. And Veronica, I'm wondering if you could say how helpful it has been to develop this collaboration, given the amount of contention that was surrounding this issue at the beginning before the legislation passed and even challenging it after it passed, you all seem to have reached a point of collaboration that's led to some rather extraordinary investment and opportunity. So Veronica, could you say a little bit more about that? And then Luis, could you say what you're working on with the CARB and with Veronica? Yeah. So uh, Vernice, you know, I should underscore that it Cap and trade in California remains to be a rocky road with the environmental justice community. And the advisory body that Louise serves on, the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee, that group was created under AB 32, which is was a wonderful inclusion because it is really important that we're having a regular ongoing dialogue with the EJ community about the implementation of AB 32. Having said that, though, it continues to be a rocky road. So last summer, there was an effort to extend cap and trade because the program 
was set to expire on December 31st, 2020. So last summer, there was a battle at the legislature to get an extension of uh, cap and trade that would extend it out to 2030. That extension did come. But the interesting thing about it is that in order for that a bill to be passed, there was a companion piece of legislation that was created, and that's called AB 617. I am really interested in hearing Luis talk a little bit about his work under AB 617, but that bill recognizes this whole theory of potential increase of air toxics and criteria pollutants at CAP facilities. So AB 617 actually requires real emission reductions on a local level in disadvantaged communities and other low-income communities and communities of color across the state. One piece of AB 617 requires community air monitoring. So we're now looking at community-scale granular data that people are actually breathing when they step outside of their school or their house or their church. And that is revolutionary, at least in terms of how air quality is approached and regulated. So as you know, Vernice, the our regulatory framework in the United States requires really a, a regional monitoring of the air. And it requires standards that are 24-hour standards and one-hour standards or eight-hour standards and not necessarily putting real-time information, real-time data into the hands of community groups. And that's one of the things that is really important about AB 617. And I'll kick it off to Luis, but I, I want to just kind of set it up that Luis and his organization, Comité Civico del Valle, has definitely the largest uh, community air monitoring network in California and possibly the country monitoring air quality from the U.S.-Mexican border at Calexico, all the way up to the Salton Sea. And maybe for our listeners, Luis can say a little bit about the Salton Sea and what it is and what its perils are. So Luis, what opportunity has that created for your organization, for the communities that you work with? What are you all doing on the ground in this collaboration with the California Air Resources Board? Yeah, I'd like to start off just where we left off in terms of the battles that happened back in July 2017, where uh, this Bill 398 was uh, introduced to extend the cap and trade. I mean, it's clear that environmental justice communities didn't want that, and their voices uh, were loud, and the satisfaction was was well known to the legislature, to California Air Resources Board, and even in participating with the advisory group that was formed as part of AB 32, even though environmental justice was at the seat. I have to remember that there were also other advisories where industry was also at the seat. And that's always the disadvantage as that environmental justice advocates, a lot of times we don't have the same capital. We don't have the same capital to be able to make a difference at the legislature. And many times we're not as influential at the legislature to put forth the best possible programs to reduce greenhouse gases, especially those that are affecting not only in a, in a global scale, but also at the localized level. So the fact that AB 617 came in as a companion bill to the uh, cap and trade extension, it really caused a lot of concern 
because it was pitched as though, you know, if you support this cap and trade, well, you get this 617, who has, which has localized benefits on reducing both toxics and criteria contaminants, which we know are affecting the public health at the local level. And so that caused a lot of concern among the environmental justice communities, and, and there wasn't immediate support for it. And I believe that cleared through its passage, there, there wasn't sufficient support. The only reason we we saw benefits is because we had already spent five years working with community monitoring. So we knew that a big component of AB 617 was going to allow us to institutionalize community monitoring. We in California do not have enough regulatory monitors monitoring the air. And these monitors are used to put the brakes on sources, on industry, just on any source of emissions that are regulated under the Cleaner Act. And those that go beyond the Cleaner Act, they're specific to California. But we know there's a lot of data gaps. So we, we saw an opportunity here to institutionalize monitoring and to have what environmental justice for a long time has been asking is that there are targeted reductions at the fence line level. And that's a term that for many years has, has been pitched. It says we need to fix and address the localized issues because just because there's a facility and these air contaminants are measured in, in large uh, regional areas, it is not the same experience when you dilute it across a region of sometimes hundreds of miles in space versus a low-income disadvantaged community that is fence-line to that source. And so I think that with AB 617, it really opened up that opportunity to, to tackle the localized sources, to put real-time data, to really democratize environmental protection, and to be able to put scientific instruments into the hands of communities, not only environmental justice communities that are actively participating in California, but also put it in the hands of residents that can better understand. This is a, a step into better understanding what regulators do. And it has certainly empowered us and put us in positions of power to bring greater accountability to government and, and to ourselves, because we can't just take a number that is given to us and it says, you know, you're breathing clean air. We have found that that's not always the case. A lot of times these numbers don't add up to what we're being told. And I think by having all these instruments on the field, it really continuously audits what government is giving us. And sometimes they're correct, sometimes they're wrong. But it, it gives us all a responsibility to participate in environmental protection and air quality reductions in our communities. And so what specifically, Luis, are you all doing in terms of air monitoring? I know you have a very sophisticated network going on, and I and I understand that you even helped to develop that technology. So you, can you say a little bit more about what y'all are doing on the ground? Yeah, so I have had a long partnership, I would say going back as to far 2005, working with uh, State Department of Public Health with the California Tracking Program. And because there was already this relationship and interest in working on community participatory research, we came across a what they call an R01 research funding opportunity through the National Institutes of Health, and we applied for it. And so it is. it turned out as a $2 million investment in developing a community monitoring network. We partnered with, as I said, with California Tracking, University of Washington, and we had many advisors, including the uh, California Air Resources Board, the local air, air board, and uh, in other universities such as Washington University and University of California, Los Angeles. So there was a lot of support for this. Over the five years, we were able to deploy 40 air sensors that are made up of, they collect, well, these, these are low-cost sensors, they collect 
PM10, PM2.5. They're not regulatory sensors, but with all the scientific support that we had, we were able to develop a, a good scientific methodologies and include regulatory methodologies to be able to convert particle counts into mass concentrations. Now, all this information has been published. We as, as an organization and, and our community advisors have really no, learned all the intricacies that go into understanding science is well known also as citizen science. And so I think it's really given us a better understanding of how to interpret air data and giving us better understanding of how to advocate on these reductions. It's leveled the playing field when it comes to interacting with scientists at the California Resources Board or other regulatory agencies, scientists. I think it's really given us the tools and abilities to communicate in the same way and be able to make progress in making verifiable reductions. And that's what we're doing right now. So, Veronica, the question I have for you, based on how Luis just described what they're doing through his organization and with their community air monitoring network, is how valuable does the CARB see their work and the partnership that you've developed with them? And what do you think the lessons are for other communities who are really, really trying to get a handle on community-based air monitoring, but also making sure that it meshes with what the regulators' um, quality standards in terms of how you collect data and how that data is validated? Interesting question, Bernice. One of the key issues that has arisen and, you know, we're going to be grappling with as we implement AB 617 is what happens with this data. I think that with some people, there is an expectation or maybe I should say a desire that the data that is collected through community-based, community-led air monitoring should be used in enforcement or in a regulatory context. And unfortunately, we can't use that data yet as regulatory data. And that's in part because our monitors are certified by the US EPA or the US EPA has a federal reference methods and lays out the protocol for doing air monitoring. Community air monitoring is not yet there, but it's my belief that AB 617 is a statute that is technology forcing. I think that we're going to see more low-cost sensors coming on the market. But in addition to that, I think that there's going to be a real push that this data that's collected be used more in our regulatory context. An immediate use for this uh, data is that it's kind of the bellwether when we see air monitoring data being collected and we see data spikes that Luis's network might produce or another air monitoring network might produce, then we know that that's, we need to send our regulatory monitors to that location to figure out what's going on and to be able to use it in an enforcement context. So that's one important piece of it. But in addition to that, AB 617 requires us to create a data portal and people are going to be feeding this community collected data into that data portal once we get it set up. So I think that over the long term, we're going to see more of an integration of uh, community collected data that's put into our portal and put together with our regulatory data to give us a clearer picture of what's going on in the community level, what are the where are, are the sources, how can we do source apportionment and better understand what's going on in the community level. 
with respect to, again, the CCV, Comité Civico del Valle, and its Ivan Air Network, that network is really a model for the rest of the state. So as we lay the framework for what community air monitoring looks like under AB 617, and AB 617 requires community air monitoring, maybe uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer because that air monitoring is actually going to be done by the local air districts throughout the state. But having said that, the IVAN network has provided a model for us. So as we prescribe for the air districts across California what community air monitoring looks like, we're adopting a lot of what's coming out of, of what the IVAN network has provided as a model. So the IVAN network has community steering committees, and that steering committee identifies where the monitors should go, and it really governs how the network is operated. And so we're going to be looking to um, air districts to adopt the same model when they're doing their community air monitoring. But aside from that as well, I should say that there are other air monitoring networks in the state that are smaller than the IVAN network, but have definitely adopted a lot of the format of the IVAN network. So there's an air, an air monitoring network at the U.S. border in San Diego at San Isidro, and that network was modeled after the IVAN network. Louise's organization has other monitors in other parts of the state. For example, in the city of Arvin, which is near Bakersfield, you'll find one or two monitors there. So it's already being replicated around the state. And as we partner with Luisa's organization, Comité Civico del Valle, one of the things that we are looking for them to do is to kind of be a technical assistance organization so that it's kind of like community to community learning from each other how to to erect community air monitoring networks rather than having the state or the local air district build that capacity. We support CCV and support them in building capacity and sort of paying it forward to peer groups throughout the state. In doing community monitoring, we have learned a lot of important best practices. Certainly has not been an easy road, but we're trying not to get distracted with a lot of the enthusiasm and development of new sensors and the interest of creating cool apps. Our focus has always been in bringing a benefit through community monitoring and filling data gaps for communities that are still not reflected on, on maps, such as the data that is collected by the Calumbiro screen, which is the statewide tool that identifies disadvantaged communities. A lot of communities aren't on that map, and we know by visual and references that these communities live in extremely poor conditions, affected by many sources of emissions. And so our goal for monitoring has never been to develop a cool app for people to have on their phone to be able to understand what's happening in the air you know, across the nation. We need to bring benefits to communities. We need these tools to be able to be used to protect public health, to give advisories to the communities that are living next to these facilities that are causing an enormous amount of health problems. So the reason this is important is because we need to differentiate from the enthusiasm of developers who, who are just trying to get these apps on the market or perhaps the data sector trying to collect enormous amounts of data from everywhere. We already are faced with challenges that 
community monitors are not recognized by the US EPA as a regulated, validated, official standard of monitoring. The data is calibrated. Uh, and it, for example, our monitors are located next to regulatory monitors for calibration purposes. And we utilize those reference points to be able to expand the data in areas that are not currently being covered by government. It is putting new information because we know that even although government monitors in large areas, we're able to collect data in at the more localized level. Some of the other things that that we feel are really best practices that we have learned is data transparency. There are sensors out there that are being put in the market and a lot of marketing funding is putting behind them. But at the end of the day, all they get is a number. What we've been able to develop is full transparency of our data, full publication of our data in journals. So anybody can have this is open source. So people can see where, for example, with our particular matter monitors, which we feel that we're really at the cutting edge of monitoring when it comes to particulate matter because we have the best scientific methodologies and the best regulatory methodologies, quality assurance built into it. It takes a lot of money to get as far as we have. But yet there's a lot of distractions where sensors are being built, but the formulas of how those particulates flow from a particulate to a mass concentration, which is what government uh, measures, that formula isn't there. And I think as an environmental justice organization, you know, we're done with lack of transparency. We don't want just an end number. We want to know how they got from point A to point B. We want full transparency. And this is what we're pushing to assure that the regulators, that California Resources Board prescribes to full transparency when it comes to monitoring. And there's a lot of forces out there. Industry probably doesn't want transparency. Certain people within the agency card doesn't want transparency. With the early monitoring that we've done, there's already uh, in discussions with US EPA, they had admitted that since the 90s, they knew that some of the monitoring wasn't really capturing the high levels, which we're capturing in Imperial. We don't know to what extent the monitoring that has existed till now, going beyond particulate matter, but other contaminants that are regulated, we don't know how real those numbers are. If there is no transparency, there's no way to audit what government is doing. And this is doesn't it's not meant to be in a negative way, but government moves really slow. And it could take decades before government makes any shift into modernizing the way that they measure air quality. So in California, we're very fortunate to live in California because California passed AB 617. That is a revolutionary piece of legislation, and it will be very revolutionary when we're done implementing it. It's still a work in progress, but we're making great strides at this moment with that. So it sounds to me like you all are democratizing air quality data and the gathering of that data and the transparency around how that data is viewed and analyzed. I just think that's an extraordinary, extraordinary step forward. Would you agree? And that's going to be our our final question. Uh, So, yeah, I'll start here. Um, Definitely agree. This is putting air quality data into the hands of Californians. And the data can be used in a number of different ways. I mean, one is that when a community is monitoring air quality and they see a spike in that community on a website through, you know, the information being publicly transmitted, 
they're able to change what they do. If it's a bad particulate matter day, they can keep their kids from playing outside or choose not to go running outside because the air quality is bad. And and they won't have to wait for the government to tell them what the air quality is. But Bernice, you know, I do want to underscore that the backbone of AB 617 is really reduction of toxic emissions and criteria pollutant emissions in local communities. So once the community air monitoring networks under AB 617 are up and underway, the end goal is to take stock of this data that we that communities now have and that is publicly displayed and put together plans for reducing air emissions in those communities. Now, AB 617 isn't perfect, but it's by no means perfect. And we still have some hurdles to overcome. A couple of those hurdles have to do with the fact that land use decisions are local decisions. And so in Oakland, where you have the Port of Oakland, we can work with the Port of Oakland where we have our authority. We work on goods movement and freight. But in terms of communities complaining about trucks going through their communities, we don't have authority over truck routes. Those are local planning decisions. And so what we're doing right now as we lay the foundation for the implementation of AB 617, we're wide awake and really cognizant of what those local land use decisions and authorities are. And we're trying to think creatively how to address local land use. But we're pushing the envelope and it's really exciting. Luis, is this a strong step forward towards democratizing air quality data and analysis? It is a, a huge step forward, and the constant uh, struggle to, to get the best possible scenarios for communities is present every day. But I, I think what I see that is happening now that I hadn't seen before is the level of collaboration that's starting to happen with a lot of uh, the local air districts. And Veronica's right. This, this is not just about monitoring. We get excited about monitoring because we feel that now we have a seat at the table. But this 617 goes beyond uh, monitoring and it goes into investing in reducing verifiable emissions reductions at the neighborhood level, which is something that environmental justice communities have uh, long advocated for many years. Unfortunately, the 617 does come tainted with the passage of this uh, extension of cap and trade, but we're trying to look beyond that and focus on the benefits of 617 and, you know, certainly add more, clean it up, do more. It's a good start. I mean, it's a huge jump forward. It's going to really bring a lot of power to the community. But again, you know, having spent the last five years working with citizen science with the best possible scientists we could find, including the regulatory agencies, being at the table with us does put us at an advantage. But it is now our responsibility to make sure that that we get the word out to other environmental justice communities to not be suckered into these models that are solely for the sake of profiting off of data. This was not designed for some data company to be able to absorb all this data and then turn it into some cool app that, you know, with some cool branding. This has to be a model that does emissions reductions and brings public health benefits into the community, into the neighborhood democratizing data. That's the most important thing. But it is an uphill battle because we're investing in quality. We're investing in good science. We're investing in good regulatory methods. While there's this marketing frenzy out there that is investing in creating the next viral app. And that's what we're up against. 
is trying to remove those distractions and get our communities to do real, real science at the neighborhood level. And I suspect that that's going to be ongoing with this amount of of data, there's always going to be, you know, those those opportunities for the private sector. But for us, it's all about environmental justice, it's about public health. And this is where, you know, we're really encouraging the, the California Resources Board, our local regulators, to assure that that they keep a focus on, on bringing the best possible models uh, to our communities and uh, to collect the best possible data and take all data that is there. And, and to say that, that these monitors aren't regulatory is true. But government uses all data that's out there. They use photos. They use newspaper clippings. They, they use all evidence, weather data, satellite data. There's no data that they leave off the table whenever they're determining how to best uh, intervene in re- making reductions in neighborhoods and communities. So we're right in there. We're bringing a good model of monitoring in collaboration with government. And yes, we've conquered the particulate matter, PM10 and PM2.5 most harmful to public health and and asthma and other respiratory problems. We're working with schools to bring this data real time so that they can operate their similar to a rainy day schedule. We call it air notification program, which is even more harmful to have kids outdoors whenever there's unhealthy air. We're also bringing this to uh, this program of, of air data into our asthma home intervention programs because people need to have this information real time to make informed decisions on how they go about their daily duties. So there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of things that we hope to conquer. We feel that we've conquered PM10 and PM2.5. Our next goal is to conquer methane and then continue to go from there, but not just be able to grab data and collect good data and have good quality data that is collected, but also be able to put health advisories to be able to interpret what that data means. It's not just put out a number, but what does that mean to public health? So, you know, there's a a lot of exciting work that we're doing right now and that we hope to continue the collaboration with the California Resources Board. And as is so often the case, the EJ groups in California and the regulators in California are so many steps ahead of where many of us are in the rest of the country. And we look forward to you to continuing to teach us and demonstrate for us how we can get communities what they need and how we can get regulators to really work collaboratively to help address the health effects of air pollution and exposure to disproportionate levels of air pollution, but also how we can really collaborate and work together. And Veronica, you are demonstrating that for us every day with the California Air Resources Board. And Luis, the work of your organization, Comité Civico del Valle, is just doing extraordinary work. And and I hope people will recognize that you really can do this. You can do this work. If you really want to, you can make it happen. Thank you both for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. Or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.